part of the story that we're going to look at this afternoon never made it into the musical. Um, it's not as well known as some of the other parts of the story. Joseph and his scoundrel brothers are now reconciled. But in chapter 46, their elderly father, Jacob, travels to Egypt to be reunited with the son he loved that he thinks has been dead for 20 odd years. It is a very emotional scene. If, you, if you've got a Bible, it'd be great if you could turn to Genesis. Um, in chapter 46 and verse 29, the narrator tells us that Joseph threw his arms around his father and wept for a very long time. We are going to dip in and out of chapters 47 to 49 this afternoon. And what happens in these three chapters is that Jacob, old Jacob, blesses three different groups of people. In chapter 47, first, he blesses Pharaoh. Then in chapter 48, he blesses two of his grandchildren, Joseph's sons. And then in chapter 49, finally, he blesses all of his 12 sons. So the big theme of these next three chapters is blessing. I think the Bible has a lot to say about blessing, and I wanted to give you a little definition that, that I made up. <laughs> I hope that's okay. Um, see, see if you agree with this. If you've got a better one, you can add to this. But here's my little definition of blessing. To be blessed is to live life under the smile and pleasure of God. Our culture taught, you know, I'm blessed. You know, we're blessed. Here's a definition of biblical blessing. To live under the gracious smile and approval of God. In the Old Testament, the priests would lift up their arms and pronounce a blessing over the Israelite people. You'll find it, you don't need to turn to it in Numbers chapter 6. And the priest would pronounce these words. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. I, I so love the reference to God making his face shine towards his beloved people. Being face to face with someone is very welcoming and intimate, isn't it? 
God here is not turning his back to you, but facing you. And he's not just facing you, he's smiling. A loving smile of gracious welcome. In the Bible, to be blessed, to be truly blessed, is to live knowing that God is for you and that you are at peace with him. To be blessed means, ultimately, that all is wonderfully well between you and God. I want to suggest that the Bible begins with this. God created a beautiful world. He placed the first humans in it. And in Genesis chapter 1, it says, verse 28, he blessed them, smiling upon them. And God commanded them to go and be fruitful to explore the world, to fill the world, to develop the world, to manage the world. And I want to suggest to you that the Bible ends with this same idea too. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, uses the word blessed seven times. And the final occasion is in the very last chapter of the Bible where it says, blessed, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. In other words, to be blessed is to be forgiven and to be clean and to be welcomed into his everlastingly glorious presence, to live under his smile. Now, if you've been here, We've been asking questions every week. We've been asking questions. I like asking questions. Our question today is where do we find this blessing? How can we know today, now, that we are living under the smile of God? I think there are lots of clues and hints as to how blessing works in these three chapters. So we're going to have a look at how Jacob blesses these three different people three different times and uh, we're going to see four crucial things that we can learn. Here's number one. Uh, I want to call this the overall shape of blessing. So work with me, okay? If you have a Bible, we're going to begin in chapter 47 there where Joseph tells Pharaoh, first of all, that his family has come to Egypt. He introduces some of his brothers and Pharaoh agrees to let them live in a lush part of Egypt called Goshen so they can shepherd their flocks. But in verse 7, there's a huge surprise. If you've got your finger in the page there, Pharaoh is possibly, at this point in history, the world's most powerful man. Jacob is a weathered, old, frail man who, don't forget, has only just survived a global famine. <laughs> I, I don't know what he looks like at this point. 
we're told in verse 7, Joseph brings his father Jacob in and presents him before Pharaoh. The surprise is that Jacob blesses Pharaoh. I think you'd expect that to be the other way around, wouldn't you? Little old Jacob blesses the mighty Pharaoh of Egypt. We're not told what he said, but we can picture him, can't we? Lifting up his suntanned arms, smiling and pronouncing God's kindness on the king of Egypt. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now, I, I think these ancient cultures did have a huge respect for the elderly. Maybe more than our culture does. Uh, that's a sad thing. But I, I think these cultures had a huge respect for the elderly. And perhaps Pharaoh here, you know, he, he goes along with it out of courtesy. And he's respectful for Jacob. But maybe he's thinking, how do I know that your God will bless me, granddad? It's like, in his heart, is it? he's not going to be rude, is he? But in his heart, how do I know that your God will bless me? These sound like fine words. Where's the evidence, Jacob? Here's the thing. All Pharaoh needs to do is look out the window of his palace and he will see queues of foreigners lining up to buy grain. And who was it who delivered all of that? Who was it who delivered all of that? Who planned it? Who had the foresight to deal with a global famine? You can answer. Joseph. Jacob's son. So the first scene we have here, chapter 47, points us to something really, really important. The father says the word and pronounces the blessing. But it all comes into reality through the son. Now, we haven't got time to read the rest of chapter 47. But basically, Pharaoh becomes the richest man in the whole world because of Joseph's wise leadership and planning. Pharaoh essentially ends up owning all the cash, all the animals, all the land, and ultimately even all the subjects of this Egyptian kingdom. The father pronounces the blessing, but it's the son who makes it happen. Now, this theme will echo down the whole Bible. God, the father, promises blessing who does he send to deliver it his son his beloved son one of the most famous verses in all the bible is in john's gospel chapter 3 verse 16 maybe you know it for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. When God chooses to bless the world, he always does it through his son. 
This is why Jolene read to us from Ephesians chapter 1. Maybe if you can keep your finger in the page in Genesis. I'm going to lose my place here. And we'll go back to Ephesians just for two minutes. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says this. This is Paul writing to a church in the ancient city of Ephesus. This is how he begins. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. All that follows in that passage, salvation, adoption into God's family, redemption, forgiveness, lavish, abundant, overflowing kindness and grace, the promise of the Holy Spirit, all of it is planned and promised by the Father and every single part of it is successfully delivered by the Son. The Father speaks the word and the Son makes it happen. In, this, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, there's a couple of nice echoes of the Genesis story of Joseph. When you look at verse 6, we, we sang earlier, but to the praise of his glory, verse 6 here says, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us, in the one he loves. The beloved son. The father loves the son. He's given us blessing through the son that he loves. Just like Joseph was the beloved son. And I love verse 10 as well. Where Paul speaks about the purpose of all this. With all wisdom and understanding God made he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That sounds like the dream that Joseph had right at the start of this story, doesn't it? All things bowing to the sun. That's God's plan. That's the dream. That's where history is going. He's the beloved son, and one day every knee will bow to him as the wonderful king that he is. Anyway, we're not in Ephesians chapter 1. I just wanted to show you that. Let's go back to Genesis. There's our first observation. The overall shape of blessing is always this. When God blesses the world, he always does it through his son Jesus. Secondly, the unique channel of blessing. I, I couldn't think of a better word for this. Jesus is the unique channel that God's blessing comes to us through. But let's look at the next blessing to, to develop this a little further and see something else that also points to Jesus. In chapter 48, Joseph, Jacob is getting very old now, and Joseph brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
to his dad. He, he, he brings them to Jacob's bedside, actually, for Jacob to bless them. There's a little sidebar here. The first thing about this scene is that in verse 5, Jacob seems to adopt these grandsons and, and like adopt them as his own sons. He kind of puts them on a par with all, the, all of his other sons, makes them equal with all the others. And this, this is an important historic uh, thing to happen. And the reason for that is that generations later, when this family was very big and they all returned to the promised land as a nation, the descendants of the son called Levi, they became the priests in the nation of Israel and they were excluded from owning any land. Their job was to serve the nation and they weren't granted their own lands like all the other 11 brothers were. But to make the numbers back up to 12, the tribe of Joseph gets split into two. You, you might wonder why you never see any talk in the Old Testament of the tribe of Joseph. You, you never will because Joseph, his, his tribe it was essentially the grandsons, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and that got the numbers back up to 12. A little sidebar. But the main thing here is, in this chapter, that Jacob seems to get the two grandsons the wrong way around. I mean, is this just old age? You know, I remember growing up, I have one younger brother, and my dad was constantly calling me Mark, and my brother Ian. It's, oh, sorry, sorry. It's, it's, I don't, I'm getting to that age now where I'm doing it with my kids. Um, Manasseh is the older one, and Jacob deliberately, when he's blessing them, crosses over his hands, and he blesses Ephraim and gives him the firstborn son's rights. And Joseph just thinks his dad's mistaken. We're told that his sight's failing by now, but Jacob isn't mistaken. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he's doing it on purpose. What is going on? In this second blessing, I think this is part of a biblical pattern that happens over and over again. Abel was blessed rather than Cain. Isaac was blessed rather than his older brother, Ishmael. Even Jacob himself was blessed, even though he was younger than his older brother, Esau. It seems that time and time and time again, God subverts the normal way of doing things and he blesses the world by seeming to choose the younger son and doing the opposite of what would be expected. So here's our question. Why is it that God always seems to plan to bless through the youngest son. Why does the Bible emphasize this over and over and over again? It's a theme. It's like a tune. I don't know. When we were kids, there was a little program on TV called Bod. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you remember that show. And every character had a different tune. When Bod came, it was a... And then Aunt Flo, she had a little tune. It's like this is a jingle. Every time you see this, it's like a little tune's being played. Youngest son, youngest son, youngest son. What's going on? 
Well, if, if I were to ask you, who is the Son of God? You may rightly say, Jesus is the Son of God, but he's not the first person in the Bible to be called a Son of God. The first was Adam. We've already learned, haven't we, that God blessed Adam. The Son of God blessed him. And all was well until Adam messed it up. He turned his back on God and the blessing that should have come through him to the whole world through this created first son was lost. But God wasn't finished. Next we find that Israel actually as a nation is described as God's son. God had promised Abraham that he would bless the whole world through him and his descendants. And so Israel was intended by God to be a light to the whole world. But this corporate son also rebelled against God time and time and time again. We could also, go, we, we might also include King David, famous king in the Old Testament. God promised him that a descendant of his would rule on his throne and he would be known as a son of God. But David's royal line was very mixed and the promised blessing didn't materialize through any earthly king. But then eventually, the greater son comes along, Jesus. We, we know, of course, that Jesus is unique as the eternal son of God who existed with the Father and the Spirit before creation, but the actual moment in history that Jesus enters our world is after all the other older sons who had failed to be the channel of God's blessing to the world. Jesus is the last and greatest son. If you want, the youngest son. The answer to our question, why the emphasis always on the youngest son? Because it points to Jesus. He is the youngest son, the ultimate successful son, who truly delights his father and never fails. In the Gospels, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, he hears the voice of his father saying, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. There, there, there's a smile in a sentence, if ever you heard, heard one. Get a load of that. <laughs> my son, I love him. Isn't he brilliant? The question is, will he mess it up like all the other sons did? Well, straight after Jesus' baptism, Jesus is led into the desert to do battle with the tempter himself. And this last and youngest son 
succeeds where all the others failed. He does not succumb to temptation. Jesus doesn't throw away the blessing like Adam or Israel or King David. He is the true son who finally stands up tall and true to be the unique channel for God to bless the world through. The point of all this, I think, is to underline that God blesses the world, I want to say exclusively, through his Son, the Lord Jesus. And there's a couple of things that follow from this. The first is, obviously, that this is a head-on collision with our world that often tells us that all religions are the same. In the end, they all lead to the same God. And yet God underlines for us time and time again that Jesus is not one possible option among many. He is unique and in a category all by himself. Jesus himself said on one occasion, very famously, John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is completely unique, compellingly beautiful, and he is the towering channel through which God's blessing comes to the world. But there's something else here. Here's the second thing. This truth also means... That if you have Christ, if you have Christ, you have everything. There are no sad if-onlys if you have Jesus. You know what that sounds like, don't you? If only I had this. Or if only I had that. Then I'd be able to put on Facebook that I'm blessed. If only I did this or that, then I'd be blessed. Or if only someone else was or did something, then I'd be blessed. When we think like that, what we're actually doing is giving the key to unlocking the blessing that we so deeply yearn for to someone else or to something else. We're pinning our hopes on something other than Christ. We're putting our ladder up against the wrong wall. There's nothing else that can bring us ultimate blessing apart from Jesus. He is the unique and wonderful channel through which God's fatherly blessing always comes. Let's uh, look thirdly at the idea that this points us to the future, the future climax of blessing. Now, this time we are in chapter 49. This is a helicopter ride over these chapters again. And here in chapter 49, you'll see that Jacob blesses all his 12 sons one by one as they all gather around his bed. 
And some of them only get one line. Some might get two. There are two sons who are highlighted. One of, one of them is Joseph later on. But I want to focus on Judah, who is highlighted here with a much longer blessing from verse 8 down to verse 12. Judah was one of the sons. And the first thing I want to highlight here is a glorious and wealthy king is promised here. Look at verse 10. This is Jacob speaking. It's almost a prophecy. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nations shall be his. Now, we, we know that King David descended from Judah. And we've already seen that the blessing didn't come to the world through him or any one of his descendants. But centuries later, it turns out that Jesus was also descended from the tribe of Judah. And so, in fact, the promises did all come true. In Christ, he is the promised king. In the book of Revelation, there's a wonderful scene where Jesus is described, actually, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, a mighty, conquering, all-powerful king. But look at verse 11 and see what kind of future is promised through this true king who is still to come. Jacob says that the promised king will tether his donkey to a vine and the donkey's baby to the best branch on the vine. Now, some of you know that we've got a little dog called Frodo. And uh, generally at home, when we eat our dinner, Frodo goes in his little cage. And the reason for that is that he loves food. And if we let him, he would jump up on the table and eat our dinner. And uh, we don't want him to eat our dinner, so we kind of tie him up. Well, we don't tie him up. We, he just goes in his little cage. <laughs> Jacob says here that the promised king will tether his donkey to a vine. If you had a donkey and a vine, you wouldn't tie up your donkey right next to it, would you? You would tie your donkey up round the back, you know, because you want to enjoy the grapes, don't you? You'd make sure... But what if you didn't care? What if you had so many vines that it didn't matter if your donkey ate as much as they wanted? What this picture is describing is a king whose rule brings overflowing abundance. This king is so rich, he washes his clothes in wine. The, the passage might as well say he bathes in champagne. This is a king who is wealthy. It's talking about the future and it's using picture language to convey the glorious, eternal, peace-bringing, life-giving, abundant reign of the true king, Jesus. 
In the book of Revelation, there are so many creatures singing. It talks about 10,000 times 10,000. The point is, no one can count them. And do you know what they're, sing, what they're singing? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Who is worthy, actually, to have it all? Jesus is worthy. Everything is his, and none of it corrupts him. What Jacob promises here is a king whose reign is a picture of peace and plenty, of glory and abundance, of well-being and great joy. Now, this is clearly a promise of future blessing. These brothers in Egypt weren't there yet, and neither are we. But this is the climax that Jacob is like pointing towards, whetting their appetites. Let's just go back to chapter 47 and look again at Jacob's earlier interaction with Pharaoh. We touched on this already. But in chapter 47, in verse 8, Pharaoh asks Jacob, how old he is? How old are you, Jacob? And he gives a strange answer. He, does, he, doesn't, he does tell him how old he is, but he, he says in verse 9 here, Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult and they, I mean, that sounds like a long time to me. And they don't equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. He describes his life and also the lives of his immediate forefathers as a pilgrimage. In other words, what Jacob's saying there to the most powerful man in the world is, this life is not it, mate. We're going somewhere else. He viewed his life as a journey to another place. Towards the end of chapter 47, this also explains why Jacob later on, it's from verse 29, if you want to look at that, jo Jacob makes Joseph promise that when Jacob dies, they, 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 they save his bones and they carry them back to the promised land. The reason for that is that Jacob knows that Egypt is not the place of blessing. They're all going somewhere else. Here's the thing. I, I want to remind you of this. Not only is there a glorious and wealthy king promised, I want to say this. Life actually is very short in the light of eternity. That's what Jacob is touching on here. Jacob's response is a great reminder to all of us that actually our lives are very short. Despite being over 100 years old here, Jacob says that his days have been few and difficult. Yes, he is living under God's blessing now in this broken world, but Jacob knows that every day of his life is a day closer to the joyful climax of that blessing. One day in the future. And Jacob is aware that 
compared to eternity, life is so very short, isn't it? We live in the here and now, but in the light of eternity, our few brief years here are but a moment. Here, here's the thing. If, if, our, like, if, this, if this Bible was my life, I mean, that would be it. And the rest of the book would be eternity. You get the point? The first sentence in the light of eternity, the first sentence in this book would be our life, and the rest would be beyond that. The Bible teaches us that we are immortal creatures who will live for millennia beyond our brief lives in this world. The Bible teaches us that there is the blessing of a glorious heaven to gain and the awful alternative of a hell to avoid. What do you do with your brief life now? I think this points us to this. Come to the sun for blessing and your destiny is glorious. And think about this. If Christ is yours, this life is the closest you'll ever get to hell. However deep or dark your life goes, it'll be a breath compared to the surpassing glory that you will experience. But you realize that the opposite of that is also true. That if you, if you don't have Christ, if you're not a believer in Jesus, this life is the closest you'll get to heaven. Living only for the here and now is a very short-term investment with a very big downside. The truth is, this life is not all there is. And I, I wonder whether this should liberate us from the kind of obsessive desire we can have sometimes for things to be perfect. You know, we, we long for the perfect relationship, the perfect home, perfect family, perfect job, even, dare I say, the perfect church. The per we, we want things to be perfect. There are so many possible joys in this life. But you realize that the best is always yet to come. If we are living under the blessing of God through his son, we can be realistic and hold things loosely. Living like Jacob, pilgrims who are heading somewhere glorious. We need to wrap up. Let me give you a fourth and final thought. The surprising way of blessing. We've said that the Father blesses the world always through the Son. And the climax of that will be glorious. But how does God achieve it? What is the way of blessing? I think, again, there's a little clue in Jacob's blessing of Pharaoh. We said earlier that you would be expecting the mighty Pharaoh to be blessing fragile old Joseph, uh, Jacob. But in God's economy, the exact opposite happens. God's blessing comes through the weak, 
unimpressive one. Not the mighty, powerful one. And this is a theme that is true through the whole Bible as well. The climax of blessing is glorious, but the way it comes is very surprising. When Jesus himself comes to this earth, there's nothing grand or majestic. In fact, listen to how the prophet Isaiah describes the appearing of Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. When God blessed the world through the Son, he came so humbly and quietly. And what about the salvation he came to bring? When God acts to save the world, he achieves it through his Son being crucified. Does it look glorious? Does the agonizing and humiliating death of Jesus look like blessing being poured out? This world seeks power and glory. When God saves, he does it through a cross. And a son who gives, gave all that away. Let me just read to you. You don't need to turn to it. We'll close with these thoughts. Let, let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The, these words are very profound. This, this is what Paul says. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its own wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. What a mad message. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. <laughs> Paul is saying... The message that Christians preach is absolutely barking, isn't it? The obscure life and the humiliating death of Jesus on a cross are total foolishness in the eyes of the world. And yet, in weakness and humiliation, Jesus became the powerful and mighty saviour. 
the blessing of God can rest upon us because the curse that we deserve fell on him. The way of blessing will climax in glory, but it's achieved through the weakness of a cross. Do you feel weak? Be encouraged that God loves to display his strength by working through the weak and ordinary. His grace is sufficient for you. And his power is made perfect in our weakness. To be blessed is to live under the smile and pleasure of God. The Father blesses the world always through his beloved Son. He achieves it through his foolish-looking death with the promise of a glorious climax to come. Let us place our brief lives in his crucified hands and live under the smile of God, both now in our weakness and forever in glory. Amen? Amen. We are going to sing... But let's bow for a moment. Maybe, maybe we'll just have a moment's quiet as we just reflect on, on these truths. Father, we thank you for your goodness, kindness, your grace, and your faithful love. We thank you that you have planned to bless your people. We thank you that you've done it through your amazing son. Father, we are conscious of weakness, but we, we thank you that you, you gain glory by blessing and working through the weak. Father, we pray that we would live under your smile, that we would know your approval, that we would hear your blessing upon and over our lives this day, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.